Well, hey, again, good morning. It is good to see you. Uh, there is a lot going on this morning, uh, especially at the kiosk, and so I'm going to encourage you to be sure and stop by there for, for one of the announcements that you heard. Surely something applied to you, uh, but be patient as the mission team uh, tries to answer questions and get people signed up. I know that uh, Larry, who just prayed, and the finance team will be giving out the contribution statement, so I encourage you to stop by there on your way out and uh, sign up, pick up, uh, drop off, whatever applies to you. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 in uh, just a moment. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your, your phone, your gadget, your tablet, your laptop, whatever you got there, you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we, uh, we drop Bibles underneath the seats around you and it uh, should be blue. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take that home. It's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So there uh, should be one around just somewhere. Um, this is a super exciting morning for me. Um, a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, getting to go ahead and launch uh, and actually start reading a letter. This series this year is the Letters to the Church, and so the last two weeks have been getting us ready for that. So we're starting one of the letters this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm really excited about our, our journey through Ephesians, and then uh, the letters we'll be going through after that as well. Uh, also, you see the baptismals out, and so a very special person is going to come this morning, uh, one of our sisters in Christ, to publicly uh, profess and confess uh, that she believes that Jesus is her Lord and Savior and to display that through baptism. So that will be in just a little bit. I'm excited about that as well. Um, but I'm also excited that you're here. Like it excites me when I see you here. I say it often. If you don't show up, it's really boring around here. So thank you for being here. And, uh, and hopefully you have your mental sleeves rolled up, at, at least your mental sleeves, and you're ready to go in Ephesians. Uh, we're going to get started. I'm going to give you some background to what's happening in the culture in the city, and that'll help us better understand the, the things Paul is writing to the church there. Um, but just a little series uh, info for you. So the, the, the series title this year um, is Letters to the Church. And so this is, a, is a, a portion of your Bible towards the end. It's in the New Testament between uh, the Gospels. And uh, in the end, Revelation, you're going to find specific letters written by the apostles to the new churches that were launching around the place. Some of them were just months old. Some of them have been around for a year or two. But this beautiful counsel on who God is and who the believers are in Christ and how to function as a church. And so we are going to go gold mining for wisdom and, uh, and vision from the Lord on who we are to be as his church. Uh, but, but as I've said the last couple of weeks, let's have our, our steel-toe boots on, so to speak, prepared as God examines us as a church, right? We're, we're not just observing from a distance. We've got to place ourselves underneath this microscope. And so as Paul is writing, as he will be today, to the church in Ephesus, we have to say, Paul, speak to us. Speak to Solid Rock. And we're going to read these letters as though they were addressed by the apostles to us throughout the year. I'm excited. We'll do a, a small break after Easter where we hit the, um, the pastoral letters where Paul specifically writes to Timothy, two letters, and then to Titus. And at that point, we'll be talking about church government and organization and leadership. And, and I'm praying already, um, not just for our current leaders, but among you as the church family, that God is, is, is kindling and birthing some desire in your heart to lead out at a higher capacity. Um, we're praying this year. The elders began this last week. Um, discussing and praying about who the next generation of elders would be. And so we're excited to take that journey uh, this year. We, we, we know that that comes from among you. And so, uh, so we'll do that. We'll hit the, uh, the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians this summer. And then we'll finish off with some Pauline letters in the fall. And then maybe, 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 we'll see, we'll finish up the year from, uh, from Revelation. 
the letters to the church in Revelation. So that's the plan for the year. I'm glad you're here to participate in it. Um, this morning, I, I can't imagine a more encouraging uh, sermon, or I don't know how encouraging the sermon will be, but a more encouraging uh, two verses of Scripture than what we're going to read this morning. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, I'm expecting God to stir your affections like crazy this morning for who he is and what he's done in your life. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, I'm, I'm praying for you that you would see that being a part of a church is not just being a part of an organization. It's, it's a transition in who you are. It's a transfer from one citizenship to another. It's going from death to life, from the old you to the new you, and that you would see this beautiful invitation Jesus is extending to you today. You take him up on it. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1, just going to hit verses 1 and 2 today. And so um, you probably are aware we do the adult Bible study that's supplementing this. So this after, after this service and the second service, they should be hitting Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which we'll be preaching next week. So I want to encourage you to, to participate in that as well. So here we go. Um, Ephesus, a really, um, a really important city uh, from a number of respects to the region and, uh, and so let me just hit a few of those fronts. One, um, religiously, okay, uh, you might say spiritually, though we use that word loosely. Religiously, um, Ephesians, Ephesus, was the, the place where the temple to Artemis, the goddess, was, okay? And this is a significant part of um, what the gospel was pushing up against as it moved from Jerusalem out through Asia and towards uh, Europe um, what was, were the, were the, as the gospel spread out, it began to bump up against uh, Greek mythology and, and other things happening. And so in Ephesus, this western port um, for, the, for, for Asia uh, was, was like a hotbed for not just um, worship of this goddess, but the artifacts, the, the, the items that accompanied worship, the little trinkets, the little silver and gold. And so as you can imagine... Um, it was also a, a hotbed for commerce, being a western port. Um, there were a lot of folks in the city who had made a lot of money selling relics and selling religious items for people to come worship at the temple. Well, from the temple, there was a direct path um, to, a, uh, to a theater that housed 20,000 people. So we know that was a, a huge part of their culture and society, entertainment. Um, when, when Nero takes over... Um, Nero, Roman emperor, he actually builds in, in that path in between, he builds this huge stadium uh, for public sporting events. Uh, which we call, like, we play football, they would kill people, but like, that, 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 this was the kind of things going on in Ephesus, okay? Now, as we, we saw last week, and we'll, we'll see again uh, in just a moment, um, there was a lot of just weird spirituality going on. So, not only did you have organized um, you know, religious movements here. You had cults all over the place, little uh, spin-offs of different belief systems, and you had a lot of magic taking place, a lot of magicians, uh, to the point where they were beginning to publish literature on. And so almost like from, from an uh, like a, a organized religious standpoint, a magician would have a following and would publish his tricks, and that would be kind of like his Bible. And he would he would mentor and disciple these young magicians. And so a huge part of their belief system, their commerce, their, their culture, and their society. Now, these are the people that Paul is writing to, the believers who have 
who have denounced those things and have said, we want to follow Jesus. Okay? So these are the people that we're going to be uh, seeing Paul or hearing Paul write to this morning. Okay. So let's start in verse 1 of Ephesians. 1 and 2. Ephesians starts like um, all of Paul's letters, unless he wrote Hebrews, but that's up for debate. All of Paul's letters that we know start this way. Matter of fact, uh, 12 of the 13 almost start exactly the same. Galatians is a little bit different. Um, but they all start with a similar tone, a similar greeting. Okay, So this isn't just unique to Ephesians. Uh, start this way. Paul, he identifies himself. Okay, No doubt who's writing this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's who's writing this. Okay, So far, so good. Verse, the rest of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's who he's writing to. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So already um, Paul has laid out something that he's going to call in just a minute mysterious. Okay, it's his words, not mine. He'll use it again in Colossians as well. And so really the theme of Ephesians is Paul deals with church leadership, church unity, marriage, parenting, spiritual warfare. There's this there's overwhelming theme throughout this letter that is the mystery of the gospel. When you get to chapter 3, Paul's going to say what the go- mystery of the gospel is. He's going to say, here it is. The mystery of the gospel is, and then he's going to say it. You like the timing on that? I don't think he had the light show to go along with, but we do. So now... Now, it's not like Paul wants to keep people at the edge of their seats on this, what this mystery of the gospel is, and then he just reveals it in chapter 3. He's actually talking about it all throughout the letter, okay? And, and I believe just begins the letter with this mystery of the gospel. When we hear mystery, um, we tend to think things like murder mystery, who done it, uh, right? Uh, things like that. Or maybe you think like, um, you know, uh, ghosts and goblins and that sort of thing. But the, the word mysterious means to not make sense on the surface. Something doesn't line up here, okay? And so um, Paul, his words, as he describes the gospel, is that it is mysterious. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, why did you use that word, mysterious? What do you mean by that? And so right off, right off the bat, at the very beginning, Paul writes some things that, to me, seem awfully mysterious. So let's start with the first verse, the first thing Paul says. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, that verse, if you know any background at all, is screaming, mysterious, something doesn't line up here, okay? So last week, we walked through the book of Acts, and we saw um, that Paul, now an apostle of Jesus, before that was actually a Christian persecutor, and he went by the name Saul, okay? Now, he wasn't just the guy who, who made fun of the Christians, who poked fun at, who pointed at, like, he was the one there, as we'll see in just a second, at the stoning of Stephen, the first recording of, of a martyr for Jesus in chapter 7 of Acts. So look at Acts 8.1 with me for just a second, and we're going to begin to unfold who this guy Paul is. The very first verse, so Stephen, he is, uh, he's questioned about what he believes about Jesus he, he gets up and he preaches what he believes about Jesus. And then he, then, he, then he calls the people out there who are listening stiff-necked. So he's like, he basically is signing his own death certificate. 
And here's how he dies. They actually kill him with rocks, okay? So a lot of ways to die, um, a lot of horrible, long-suffering ways to die. But, like, this is one where, like, they don't just, um, you know, inject you with some kind of special potion. Like, they literally put you in a hole so you can't get away from them, and they throw rocks at you until you die. Throw rocks, throw rocks, big boulders, throw rocks. I mean, it's all coming at this person. And your arm gets tired, you get out of the way, the next person steps up. And so this was a form of execution. And so specifically, we see this directed towards the Christians, the ones who are involved in the way, is what it's called at this point. And so Stephen, he's, he's there, he, he believes in Jesus. Jesus has changed his life. He's questioned. He said, this is who I believe Jesus is. And they said, all right then, let's stone him. Now, now, here's what we have to understand. Somebody was there giving authority to that stoning. It wasn't just an angry mob that just, you know, cut loose and was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's just throw rocks at him. This was organized. It was planned, and it was authorized by somebody. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. The, the, the person to say... Yes, green light, go, was Saul, the same guy who's writing Ephesians 1, Paul. Now, just to kind of get a better better picture of how ambitious he was to kill Christians, because this was not an isolated event. Okay, so um, after this, the gospel begins to spread to Samaria. Um, so, So God uses this to spread the gospel. Then we get to chapter 9. I want you to look at something in chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. This is Acts still, okay? So we're getting a better understanding of who's writing the letter. Verse 1. But Saul, this is chapter 1 of, um, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Like he was so ambitious to kill Christians that Luke's describing him as every time he breathed, what came out of his mouth as he exhaled were murderous threats against Christians, okay? So he wasn't like he was just forced by the government to step in and fulfill this role, or it was an isolated event. Like this was oozing out of his pores. He was zealous and ambitious to kill these people who were claiming Jesus to be the Savior. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest. Did the high priest go to him? He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, equal opportunity executor here, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then he goes on his way. This is who Paul is. He's going to chief priest saying, I need letters. I need approval. I need authority. If I find anybody, men, women, I don't care. I want permission to bind them up, to shackle them and drag them back here to Jerusalem and do to them what we just did to Stephen. Now this is, okay, this is, this is evil. This is wicked. This is dark. This is satanic. Okay? This is 9-11. This is roadside bomber whose ambitious, ambition is to simply kill Christians. That's who this is. 
And he's doing it with approval and authority from the local government. Now, he's asking for letters to go to Damascus. So he's on his way, and, uh, and, and, and Jesus slaps him around a little bit, um, which we're good with, right? <laughs> Slap him around a little bit. Strikes him with blindness, uh, challenges him. We'll look at a few of the, of the things that come out of this. Matter of fact, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Um, but what I want you to see is that Jesus is the one who initiates this. Okay? Now, Jesus has options here, right? Striking down blind, A, leave him for dead. How does that work out for you? We will let the wild animals and the vultures take care of you. Um, so, you know, you stoned a Christian, so you're going to find out what, it, what it's like to die slowly. Or this other option, too, I want you to be on my team. What? Isn't that somewhat mysterious? That Jesus would come to the number one Christian killer and say, I want you on my team. So then, so what Jesus does through this revelation is speaks to a guy who's actually in Damascus. He's about to be a target of Paul's threats. Okay? This is where he comes from and says, listen, I want you to go and I want you to talk to Saul. Let's pick this up in verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. This is a, 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 a Jesus-believing, God-fearing Christian. The Lord speaks to him, says, Ananias, I need you to do something. He says, yes, Lord, here I am. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, I want you to rise and I want you to go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Whoa, 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 hold the phone. You want me to do what? So like what happened to Stephen, you're ready for me to go that way. So you're asking me to go to my death. He continues on. He said, for, he said there's a man named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Verse 12. I'm sure Ananias is like, yeah, he's praying that he gets the opportunity to kill me. Verse 12. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Whoa, whoa, that's me. That's right. Paul or Saul has already seen the vision of you, and you're going to come in and you're going to lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Look at what he responds with, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Word had already spread to Damascus of what Paul had asked for. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is what? A chosen, which means Jesus picked him. Instruments, instrument, which means Jesus is going to use him. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Paul. Now, through Ananias going, uh, regaining his sight, he becomes a disciple of Jesus. Like, he is fired up, life-changing experience, okay? But, but think about this. 
Like even Paul says it. I'm an apostle of Jesus by the what? Do you remember that from Ephesians verse one? By the what? Say it. Will of God, which means it was whose idea? God's. Saul wasn't out looking for Jesus. He wasn't out saying, Jesus, now, if you're real, right, I want you to intervene here, right? He wasn't doing any of that. He was seeking the approval to kill Christians. Jesus initiated this. He was a chosen instrument. Now, I was thinking about this this week. What a risky move for God. From my, from my perspective, okay? Like, like let's, think, let's talk about it for just a minute. I mean, what would you be willing to do to get your sight back? Pretend, right? Lie? Maybe do some of the things we see in our modern church. Get excited about Jesus for a moment. And then the next week completely forget about it. Like, think about that. What if Paul changes his mind? Now he's embedded in the church. He has names and faces. He has all that he needs to slaughter the church. What if he changes his mind? What if he's faking it? Like, isn't this going to be like a, a discredit to God's reputation to have somebody like this working for the church just to begin with? Isn't, isn't that the way we think about things? Yes, I know he's a Christian, he's been saved, he's been forgiven, but church leadership, really? I mean, that's really going to tarnish God's reputation and who God is. No, 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 we need, we need somebody a little more holy than that. We'll let Paul clean up the bathroom, right? I mean, if he, wants, if he loves Jesus, he's willing to serve. We'll let Paul take out the trash. We'll let Paul, right, do these non-important, but like leader in the church, right, and letter, apostle, that, that seems kind of mysterious to me. Now, what we have to understand is God was not trusting Paul to, to, to stick with it, to not change his mind, to be telling the truth. God was not trusting in Paul. God was trusting instead on himself and his ability to change Paul. So when God says to Saul, I want to use you, my chosen instrument, and he responds, he receives his sight back, and Jesus begins to work in his life and, and encourage him and grow him. He's baptized. He grows in the teachings of Jesus. Okay, Jesus is not trusting in Paul's faithfulness to the way that he won't abandon him. Jesus is trusting in his ability to completely change Paul. You see the difference? So it helps us understand what Paul's writing. I am an apostle of Jesus by the what? By the will of God. This was not by my own doing. This was not by my will. I don't have the willpower, first of all, to even get involved in this movement. Second of all, to stay. And in every letter Paul writes, he wants you to understand that. I am an apostle, but not of my own choosing, not of my own doing. Jesus intercepted me in my mission to kill his followers. Now, call it mysterious, call it whatever you want. That's crazy, right? Like, we'll let people into the church like that, but they have to sit in the back row. We don't trust them to lead. Now, here's what I want to say. Um, 
Like, I don't want to pretend like I know your stories at all, um, but I know that we've racked up a pretty good rap sheet between us. Past choices, decisions, um, decisions we've made that have affected ourselves and affected others, uh, inflicted suffering through bad decisions, whether it was just financial suffering or it was physical suffering, mental, emotional suffering. We have participated collectively, all of us, in some pretty dark stuff. Amen? Okay, I need the Christians to agree with me. If you're not a Christian, hold tight. I want the Christians to be honest. Amen? Amen. Okay. And for some reason, we just, like, we don't fully see, or maybe said we just don't fully believe and trust God's ability to change us. And so we hesitate. We shrink back. Right? We say, well, I mean... I can, I can go to, I can be a member at the church, but not like involved in leadership, right? Like if they really knew, they wouldn't let me be on that team. They wouldn't want me shaking hands with people. Somebody that I knew from my former life might walk in and the whole thing will come crumbling, right? We have this mentality about us. And here at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, that's not the salvation of Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you want to bring your rack sheet of all your disqualifications to lead out and to serve Jesus, get in line. You can, you can get in line, but you need to be behind me. Unless you have strapped a bomb to your chest or loaded up with some kind of weapon and gone out seeking to kill Christians, get in line behind me. I love how if you follow Paul's letters, he will... Uh, early on in ministry, he identifies himself as the least of the apostles. Pretty humbling, right? Uh, and then he, then he moves to least of the saints. And then he ends up calling himself a chief of sinners. Paul says, get in line behind me. Because you see, the more that we understand who Saul was in the depths of his darkness, the more we understand the beauty of the grace of Jesus and the power to not just make life better, but to transform. That's what Paul wants you to know. The same Jesus that transformed me is in you. If you're in Christ, he's transforming you. And if you doubt that at all, look at what he says next. The rest of verse 1. Look at what he calls them. To the what? Saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the word saint to describe Christians in 12 of his 13 letters. And if you look at the way he uses it in Philippians, um, it, it bears some, I think, some, some help for us. I'm just going to turn over to the next book in your Bible, Philippians. Look at what he, how he says it here. So this is verse 1 of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants or bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Sounds familiar, right? But then he adds a phrase that helps us understand it even more deeply, with the overseers and deacons. So when we tend to hear the word saint, we think the super religious, right? That's how that word oftentimes gets used. It's the way it gets used in Catholicism. It gets used wholesale around the church, right? These are the superheroes, right? These are the elders, maybe the deacons, the team leaders, life group leaders, their wives, their husbands. These are the saints in the church. The rest of us, we're just common folk believers. These are the saints. But look at how he says it. To the saints 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Is he just talking about the super religious leaders? No, look at what he says next. With, with the church leaders, with the overseers and deacons. So he's talking about every believer in Christ here. And he's calling them what? Saints. When was the last time you were called a saint? When was the last time you thought of yourself as a saint? What does the word even mean, right? Besides the football team in New Orleans, like what, is, what, what do we use? It, it's a, it literally means holy. Like when was the last time you woke up in the morning, you looked at yourself in the mirror and said, thank you, Jesus, for making me holy. See, we like to operate in good. We like to operate in, operate in better than I used to be. And Jesus says, that's not the gospel. I'm not making you better than you used to be. I'm making you new. You're either a saint or you're not a Christian. And so Paul starts the letter. Now think about who he's writing to. Were these good, faithful Jews who had already been living this holy life and then just converted over to Christianity by faith in Jesus? No. Like if we go back to Acts 19 where the church is launching from last week, just a few verses there. We saw in Acts 19.7 when Paul gets on the scene to kind of clean up Apollos' teachings, there's about 12 believers there, 12 men. And we saw that. But then something remarkable happens after uh, these demons uh, straight up, or this demonic possessed man straight up tears into these seven Jewish brothers and then strips them naked and sends them out into the streets, right? Then, then Luke writes something about what's happening there in Ephesus. This is verse 18, starting in 18 of Acts 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came. But here's what they were doing. They were confessing and divulging their practices. What practices? Worship of the Greek goddess. Worship of whatever cult they were involved in. They were renouncing, sacrificing animals, and some of them even people. Some of them even chill. Like, they were involved in some dark, dark stuff. The magicians who were following the teachers of these other magicians were beginning to denounce their ways. They began divulging their practices, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. These are drachmas, a day's wages, so it's about $6 million. Like Luke wants you to understand, we just went from 12 believers to something that just exploded, and I don't even know how many believers there are now, but we calculated how much they brought in their uh, their magician resources, and it was about six million bucks, or fifty thousand days' wages. So, verse twenty, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These were the saints. One day practicing magic, following this magician. One day meeting with the occult and involved in all kinds of wicked, satanic, dark worship. Some of them were good and faithful Greeks, Romans, following the, the religions of their fathers and their father's fathers and involved in mythology and all these weird things. These are the ones that Paul is calling what? Saints. He didn't say anything about KLTY. He didn't say anything about to the brothers who wear the Christian t-shirts, the saints. So what is it, on what basis is he making this statement? One basis and one alone. 
And in every one of his letters, he says it in the following statement. Shall we read it together? Verse 2 again. Here's the basis on which he makes these two statements. Paul is an apostle of Jesus, and you as believers in Jesus are now saints. You are holy, perfect, and clean. Here's the basis. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that alone. But for the grace of Jesus, you wouldn't be in his church. But because of the grace of Jesus, you are now a saint. You are, if you're here today and you're a Christian. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that seems mysterious to you. It it seems mysterious to us too. Let's just be honest. That God would invite us into his family and fix all that is wrong with us doesn't make sense. Now, it's consistent with the character of God. It's consistent with the plan of God. He told us he was going to do it. But on the surface, when we look at it, we go, why? Why would God send his son to, to fix us like this? Why would he do that? Why would God send Jesus to die this horrific death in order to save Paul? Are you, like you and I? Right? We would have written Paul off a long time ago. If anything, we would have, we would have you know, we would have been happy for him to die. and just went, mm, sorry, look what happened. But, but Jesus was sent to the earth to save Saul and you and me. There is a, uh, a beautiful conversation that transpires in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. And we tend to focus on John 3.16, which is a beautiful passage in that conversation. Okay, where Jesus explains God sending him to the world. So 16 uh, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, this is 17, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's why I'm here. It's why God sent me. But this comes later on in a conversation that began uh, between Jesus and a Pharisee. A religious leader was asking Jesus about how to get into the kingdom of heaven. How do I get in? I don't need saint status. I don't need apostle status. I don't need elder status. How do I make sure at the end of my life I just get in? And so Jesus responds to him. If you look at chapter 3 of John, verse 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what a crazy thing he's saying. What an impossible thing he's saying. And I would say to you, what a very intentional thing he is saying. Right? No 12 steps. Because if you can do the 12 steps, you can get into heaven on your own. Right? No A, B, C, and then you're in. Jesus says, you can't get in unless you are born again. And and he even makes the point. He's like, well, that's impossible. Can, can a man actually re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? Like, what you're, what you're saying, Jesus, that's mysterious. It doesn't make sense. And so Jesus continues to tell him, and he says what? The same way that the serpent was lifted up in the desert in the Old Testament, and the people were healed, and all they did was look at it. So the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, must be lifted up in front of the people, that they would be healed, saved, brought back to life simply by doing what? Three steps, 12 steps, 20 steps, 30 steps, one step, 
gazing on the Son of God and believing. And at that moment of belief, they are born again. Born new. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this. Next week, in the next from 3 through 14, we're really going to look at the implications of what it means to be born again. But what we need to see here is that when you are saved, you're not just made better. God just doesn't, it's not, God gives you a nudge and says, here, let me help you up that hill. Like something dramatic happens. It happened to Saul, but the same work is at work in us. Just a few examples from the scriptures that describe the work that Jesus does, and, and we'll go into depth next week. If you want to read ahead, uh, read uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. In Romans 5, the same author Paul describes that being born again this way. In verse 8, he says, But God shows his love for us. Remember what Jesus said, For God so loved the world? Now here, Paul is saying that God shows this love for us in that while we were still what? Sinners, wicked. Might as well just say, when we were still killing Christians. When we were still, right, working against God. That's when Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified. We've gone from unjustified, unworthy, unfit, unqualified, to now justified before God. That's a, from, right, from sinner to saint. Not only that, much more, so since we have been justified by his blood, much, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if we, will, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul is saying, because he lived it, he experienced it, he believed it. Everything that was wrong with you has now been fixed in God's eyes. Everything on your rap sheet that disqualified you from entering into the kingdom of heaven has been reversed. The same way that Paul was a Christian killer and now God's using him to launch the church and to bring people to Jesus, that same transformation is happening in you at the moment you believe. A stinking men. Yes, amen. It's what Paul will describe in, in Philippians 3 when he's given his own testimony. And he lays it all out and he says, but not that, you know, not that I already have attained all this. I haven't. Not that I'm already now perfect in my actions and all you see from me is perfect Jesus reflection. I still mess up. I got in Peter's face. Like he says that. I still get angry. But here's what I do. I strive to take hold of that which has already taken hold of me. Me living out my life in Christ is the process of taking hold of that which has already taken hold of me. And when Jesus puts his hands on me, when he takes hold of me, he makes me holy, perfect, new, born again. And then I spend the rest of my life here on earth taking hold of that, grasping for that, striving to obtain that, which has already taken hold of me. Paul will write it this way in Colossians uh, chapter 1, 13 and 14. He says, he, being Jesus, has delivered us. It's this idea that he's picked you up from where you were and he's moved you somewhere else. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Christians, I mean, if, if this does not stir your heart and your affections for Jesus, I got nothing else. If we can't look at the contrast between what we, right, what we actually deserved and what God gave us instead, right, there, there aren't two more polar opposite things in the universe, what we deserved and what God gave us instead. And, and we have to see it that way. And the more we see Right? The more we see how hopeless and lost that we actually were, the more excited and affectionate and the more our hearts are stirred to continue to live as who Jesus has made us to be. So on Paul's journey to Damascus, God didn't just step in and say, hey, I want to tweak a few things, Paul. He struck Paul to his knees and he literally killed Saul there. And he was reborn as Paul. Simply by his faith in Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want you to hear the gospel message. There isn't a person in this room who has a rap sheet that God is embarrassed to be around. Just telling you. God is not embarrassed by what you've done. He doesn't like it. but, But you don't have to hide it from him. Matter of fact, when you hide your sin from God, What you're indirectly saying is the death of your son wasn't enough for me. I know it was a big deal to you, God. I know it means a lot to these other people, but it wasn't enough for me. Really? I'm going to say that might be slightly offensive to God. Because he wants us to see his son as enough for all of our sins. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus is inviting you into his family. And it's a transfer a transfer of identity, a transfer of citizenship. You start off as Saul and you leave as Paul. You want to change your name, go for it. Whether you change your name or not, your position in God's kingdom changes permanently and he takes a hold of you. And not like Paul or Saul was taking hold of Christians, he takes hold of you like a loving father. He embraces you and he pulls you in like a prodigal son, even while you're still dirty. He says, here, that, I want you here with me. Let me clean you up. Let me change who you are. Let me fix you. Let me give you a new heart. Let me birth new life in you. So how do we get there? How do we do it? In the same way that the serpent was lifted up in the desert and the people looked on Jesus and believed, today is your day of salvation. I hope and I pray that you will believe and trust in Jesus today. We're going to do a baptism in a minute after a song, and, um, and you're going to see the gospel um, played out, portrayed, displayed, symbolized. And I want you to know that I've already been praying for you that this would be a, a very, more than just inspiring or moving, this would be a day of redemption for you, that you would see one believer's testimony, you would realize that you need Jesus in your life. You can't fix yourself, you can't make yourself better. You need a rescue, a transfer. I'm going to pray in just a minute that you would make that move today. You would come to Jesus in faith and believe on him for the forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, reconciliation, the whole thing. And then come back next week and we'll walk through everything that has already taken place in your life without you even knowing it. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite worship team to come back up and then we'll do do the baptism in just a moment.